Hello and welcome to Me Too. Thank you for listening. My name is Jess and this is our first episode of the fourth season. Me Too Monologues is an annual show about identity entirely written, performed, and produced by members of the Duke community. Students, alumni, and faculty anonymously submit stories about their life experiences and peers perform the monologues in a theatrical production. In each episode, we will start with a performance of a monologue, followed by a conversation about themes of the piece with the actor, students involved in organizations relating to the content of the piece, and or other community members. Today, we have Duke University junior Kaylin Woodward performing the monologue Peanut Butter, which was performed in the 2018 show by Peyton Dilweg. Before we begin, we want to note that Me Too Monologues is not affiliated with the Me Too movement. And now, here is Kaylin performing Peanut Butter. I want to start off by saying that I love food, like, a lot. I'm a pretty quiet person, and people just assume I'm introspective and thoughtful. Actually, most of the time I'm not saying anything because I'm daydreaming about my next meal. I really don't get it when people say they forgot to eat lunch or something. How can you possibly forget about food? One of the first and favorite things I do when I wake up is plan what I want to eat that day. Let's see... I'll start off with some healthy oatmeal, throw in a banana, add a tablespoon of peanut butter. Just one tablespoon. Div school is definitely the move for lunch. And... Ooh, I'll get a salad from Farmstead for dinner. Perfect. Healthy and under 20 food points. Let's get this day going. I walk into my shitty central apartment kitchen and pop my plain instant oatmeal in the microwave. Then, when my roommate isn't looking, I pull out my phone to log the calories. One serving of oatmeal, 150 calories, a banana, 89, one tablespoon of peanut butter, 95. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Calorie counting is bad. Everyone knows this. And if I'm hiding this from my roommate, one of my best friends, then that's probably a bad sign. Plus, studies show it doesn't even work. Ah, but that's where you're wrong. Because I know calorie counting can work. Last summer, it helped me lose 10 pounds in two months. That's more than a pound a week. And all I had to do was wake up at 5 to run 3 miles before work every day, log every single thing I ate, and go to bed hungry every night. Not that bad, right? The less food you eat, the less you have to log. And given that everyone's glued to their phones anyway, it's not that hard to hide your addiction to the MyFitnessPal app. Like I was bulimic or anything... Although I can't say I never tried that. I'm just a normal girl trying to lose some weight. How can I not be a little self-conscious when half the people at this school look like they just walked off the runway? I head over to the cabinet, still super excited for the day. 
I'm a morning person, if you can't tell. And reach for the peanut butter. But, wait. Why is the jar almost empty? I just bought this last weekend. You know what sucks? Is that the pressure to be skinny doesn't just come from school. Last time I was home, I was about to bite into my mom's delicious apple cake when my older brother chimed in with, Nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. A common mantra in the modeling industry. So now I've got my brother and Kate Moss telling me not to eat the slice. Ugh. Anyways, back to this peanut butter jar. Where did it all go? I'm starting to get nervous because peanut butter is like my crack. Some people cave for chocolate, ice cream, pitchforks, tots. But PB is my kryptonite. So if the entire jar of creamy goodness is gone after a few days, that means... Oh. Now I remember. Two days ago, I was alone in the apartment with no one to witness my weakness... And I was eating peanut butter straight, spoon to mouth. I told myself I'd only have one tablespoon. Then two, all of a sudden, the crushing guilt I felt that night washes over me again at the mere thought of consuming over 500 calories of peanut butter. The craziest part of all of this is that I am by no means fat. In fact, I'm a pretty healthy, thin person, especially according to my friends. They see the salad-loving gym rat who runs half marathons, not the empty peanut butter jar that I carefully hide under a paper towel in the trash. I get way too much satisfaction from the perception I create when I choose the healthier option at lunch. <laughs> Typical you, they'll say, and I will be glowing on the inside. Let's keep it this way. But then I take a step back. What the hell is wrong with me? Why am I sustaining this illusion of effortless perfection that Duke students are oh so fond of? And I'm not just presenting this illusion to acquaintances. I'm trying to fake it in front of the people closest to me. Friends, I consider family. Is my self-loathing and embarrassment so deeply rooted that I can't share even a shred of my vulnerability with people I spend hours with every day? And when did I become this person who hates her own body? But it's really not just about body image. My body is like the scapegoat of my mind. I make my extra fat the root of all my problems. Palm to test. My brain would have been functioning better if I had run that morning. Feeling lonely? I'd have a boyfriend if I were skinnier. Depressed? I'll always be happy once I'm thin. I don't love my body. More importantly, I don't love myself, and somehow of all the ways I could make it better. Studying more, staying in touch with old friends better, going out more. I think 
starving myself is the easiest one. Fast forward a year to when I am actually writing this. I'm lucky to say I've come a long way from my calorie counting past. It took time, a painful amount of confiding in people, and a liberating realization that I shouldn't give a shit what other people think. But to everyone who's still in a bad place, at the risk of sounding extremely corny, I just want to say that you are beautiful. Actually, you're more than beautiful. You're hot as fuck. You are the shit. So go ahead and eat as much peanut butter as you want. Well, maybe not the entire... <sighs> what am I saying? Do what you want. Frika, thank you so much for coming in and talking on our show. Can you just give us a brief introduction of your background in eating disorders and body image? Uh, sure. I've been um, at Duke for 30 years now, and originally I did some work over at the medical center working more with obesity and weight management in that capacity, and then I moved over to the university side about 20 years ago where I'm the director of nutrition services at Student Health, and so we see students one-on-one -on -one for clinical appointments that can range anywhere from eating disorders to I've become vegan or vegetarian, uh, and I also teach on an undergraduate and a graduate level. But a lot of the work we do here with our students really is around disordered eating. Um, yeah. And could you explain to us the difference between having an eating disorder, having problems with your body image, and disordered eating? Sure. So disordered eating is really just having an unhealthy relationship with food. And that um, is that I'm thinking about calories all the time. I'm not letting myself eat what I want because I'm worried about my weight or not eating it makes me feel better, sort of more empowered. Uh, so that can lead to an eating disorder, but it, it won't necessarily. There's sort of a lot of things that have to come together for something to develop into an eating disorder. And an eating disorder is uh, basically, we use the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, which is a psychiatric sort of golden book of diagnoses, but eating disorders have very specific criteria of what someone has to present with in order to have an eating disorder. So the body image piece is often connected in there in that it may start out with someone not liking the fat on their thighs or the fat in their midsection and deciding, you know, if I lost weight, I'd probably feel better about myself. So the body image piece is intricately connected to how we relate to food and what we end up doing with our food. And it often starts out by thinking we're going to feel better by changing our body. And so unfortunately, it doesn't always end that way. Yeah. Gotcha. It's good to clarify those distinctions. Sure. Um, so after hearing that monologue, Peanut Butter, I'm just curious about your first impressions. What are the things that immediately come to mind? the many students that I see that I hear that monologue over and over just in slightly different versions. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, the, the denial that comes with what ultimately becomes an eating disorder is that, you know, I can tell myself that calorie counting is bad and I don't like using words good or bad because I just don't believe in that. But, you know, the, the philosophy that people are telling me I shouldn't count calories, but I rationalize that it's okay for me to do that. Um, part of that is the need to feel in control, the need to feel like I'm being proactive, and so I'm going to justify 
doing the calorie counting because it makes me feel good regardless of what other people say. And, you know, the whole part about then going for the peanut butter jar and realizing it's half empty and, um, you know, oftentimes we are sort of numb to those events. We remember them in the moment, but then not so much later and then coming back to what we like to eat and wondering why it's empty or why it's gone. So, so much of the monologue really speaks to what I hear from so many students here. The cycle of binging and then going back to healthy eating and then binging again and right. ad infinitum. Right. And just as you, you know, healthy eating is one of the areas that we struggle in that everyone defines that very differently. So when students come in and say, well, I eat really healthy, one of the things I always ask them is, can, can you share with me what that means to you? Mm-hmm. Because it will go in waves. You know, sometimes right now we're in the wave of no starches, no bread, mm. no potatoes. You know, carbs are bad. We need to have lots of vegetables and salmon and chicken and a little bit of fat. Um, and so it's always important for me to get a sense of where are they coming from when they define their diet as healthy and sort of doing some education around, well, that might seem healthy to you, but that's not really what a healthy diet is. Yeah. yeah, and it's super interesting how we have this history of before it was low-fat, fat is bad, and now we're in a low-carb stage, and who knows what the next fitness or health trend might be. I don't know, but the pendulum usually swings. I've been around long <laughs> enough to be on both sides. <laughs> were there clues earlier on in the monologue before she talked about calorie counting that made it obvious to you that the author might have... Eat, an eating disorder or disordered eating, um, are there symptoms that might manifest in real life? Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with loving food. I mean, my goal is that everybody loves food, but yeah. you hopefully love yourself, you know, while you're eating versus uh, not always having <coughs> that, that self-compassion when, yeah. when we're eating. But the idea of starting the monologue saying, I love food, I've been here long enough to know usually when a monologue here starts that way, it's not necessarily about the health benefits of eating, <laughs> but, you know, recognizing that food is very important in this person's life. So that already makes me a little bit like I kind of know where this is probably going to go. Yeah. Uh, and as, as she pointed out, uh, you know, calorie counting isn't bad. It's, it's really not beneficial. I mean, in the long run, it really doesn't do very much other than empower you to think that you're doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, So when she alluded to the fact that, you know, she was putting the oatmeal in the microwave and and putting in the calories, and as she pointed out, secretive to her roommate, you know, Mm -hmm. doing it in hiding. And and that's already just, those are red flags that if if you're doing something that you're okay with, you wouldn't be hiding it. So there's already an element of shame, which Mm -hmm. is very pretty much across the board with most eating disorders. And um, so I have to do things in secret. I either don't want people to know because I don't want them to fix me. Mm -hmm. This is really important for me to own and I don't want people to try to make me better. I don't want people to worry about me because they're already worried about me anyhow. And part of it is I should be able to get a handle on this. You know, apparently everybody else here does. Uh, They make it look so effortless. You know, and that's a lie. We know that's a lie. And so those type of already sort of secret behaviors where we're sort of talking to ourselves about, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing this is is already a clue that this is probably not the healthiest place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And as Peyton mentioned, that Duke's effortless perfection culture definitely doesn't help. No. And it's interesting to me because for a while I thought that we sort of lost that label. You know, when we first did the studies many years ago to look at uh, the uh, culture of women at Duke, and this really, this this phrase was cloned, 
everybody knew about effortless perfection. I mean, you could literally stop people on the street because it had been written about and you heard about right. it. And then it seemed to wane. It seemed to go away. There were a couple of years where if you asked a freshman coming in or a sophomore if they had uh, ever heard about effortless perfection, they didn't know what we were talking about. This so, was the study in the early 2000s, right? Correct. Correct. That was with President Nancy Cohen. Cohen. Yeah. Gotcha. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. She was the one that was really sort of targeting women's uh, quality of life and sort of how are women... Uh, uh, working and, and living here at Duke. So, mm -hmm. yes, it was all of her work. I know we had done focus groups with alumni and done many, many interviews. And I think it was over a period of a year where we really gathered this data. Mm -hmm. And so some interesting things came out. I think women that graduated before the 1980s also were not familiar with the concept of effortless mm -hmm. perfection. So clearly that grew later on. But again, I was interested to hear Paige mention that because really for a while, I, students didn't seem to know what that meant. So clearly that has come back. Yeah, And absolutely. unfortunately, you're very familiar with the term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how can people who are tangential to this experience of uh, disordered eating, like friends or family members, how can they help without making that person feel even more ashamed or without overreaching? Now, that's a great question because I think our nature is that we always want to help people, but sometimes we help without asking. Yeah. So I think the first thing you have to do, if, if you've had a discussion with somebody about your concerns, mm -hmm. you want to ask them, how can I help you? And they may say, I don't want your help. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback and clearly you worry and you want to do something, but you also have to respect that. Mm -hmm. You know, you could offer, well, if you don't want my help, is there anyone that I can help you meet with or go to where you might be willing to work with them. But the initial reaction is often pushback. They don't they don't want you in their business. They don't want any help. Right. Sometimes it really unfortunately takes somebody to get to a pretty unhealthy place before, you know, they're aware that something isn't really going well. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we respect people's privacy when it comes to our relationship with food. And that doesn't mean turn a blind eye. Mm -hmm. So clearly if you're seeing somebody that you're worried worried about you know, uh, finding a time that's convenient, sitting down and chatting, not over food, but just sort of expressing that, you know, I've, I've noticed that over the semester you don't hang out with us anymore, you exercise all the time, you're always at the gym, you look tired a lot of the time. So being very specific about what you're concerned about, but not about food, because it, eating disorders <coughs> are not about food. Right. And so I don't want a food conversation. All I'm really doing is sharing with you that I'm worried about you because these are things that I've observed. And again, typically the pushback might be, no, you're imagining it, I'm just having a bad day. But you've already planted that seed and made the person aware that somebody is aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so the idea would be to follow up again in a week or two if you're still noticing some of the same behaviors. And just don't let people believe that nobody notices. Because once you notice, people are a little bit more on guard with, with their actions. They might be more likely to come and talk to you because you've brought it up. So uh, we I don't see. want to turn a blind eye, but we don't want to fix people. It is not our job to fix them. Mm -hmm. And so if, if they don't want help in that moment, we want to respect that, but we might want to follow up in a week or two. Yeah. And related to that, I don't know if this is maybe confidential, but are most Duke students who come to your office, are they referred by a friend or someone else, or do they come of their own volition? We get referrals from everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere, from teachers, Duke Reach, uh, many times friends, people that I've met with, 
Um, so we can get referrals from literally anywhere. And we encourage that. So however you want to get into the help system, mm -hmm. we're happy to, to see you regardless. So sometimes they might be seen at Student Health and we get a referral from one of the medical providers. Sometimes it might be through Duke Reach. Sometimes it's through students that I've worked with over the years or over the months and they're referring a friend. Um, we do a lot with sororities, which I love to do. If we go and speak to sororities about mm -hmm. uh, doing some outreach just about healthy eating, then usually after an event like that, then we'll get referrals. Students will email us and say, hey, mm -hmm. I'd like to meet with you. So we're happy to meet with students regardless of how they come to us. And I know the nutrition office has just moved um, to another part of the wellness center, which I'm very curious about because whenever I talk to other Duke students, they think of uh, the wellness center as either CAPS or student health, and I never really hear conversation about the nutrition offices. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So we're in the wellness building. We were downstairs on the first floor, and we've moved up into student health. Mm -hmm. So nutrition is part of student health. That is a service that is offered through student health. And under the Duke insurance plan? Correct. Awesome. Uh, there's no insurance, so it's paid for by your health fee. So when you meet with us, it's not submitted to insurance. That's already paid for. You've already paid for our services when you pay your health fee. So anybody who's enrolled in classes is technically already paying for this option. Oh, and we okay. also support wellness. Mm -hmm. So we are the nutrition component of the wellness unit, and we are a part of student health. So right now our offices are upstairs in student health, so you make appointments through student health, basically. Okay, awesome. I had no idea that it was part of the health feed. That's so good to know. Yes, and I'm delighted that you're broadcasting that because we have so many students that say, I had no idea until they're graduating. So yeah, it's already paid for. All right, awesome. Um, how do you think that Duke could improve on this issue, whether it's eating disorders or really this broader issue of effortless perfection? I know that's a really big question, but you can take whatever part of it you want. Yeah, I mean, again, there's so many variables that have to come together for somebody to have an eating disorder. You know, we often say the environment can be very triggering mm -hmm. for people who are already more prone to being uh, very all or nothing, very perfectionistic, uh, might struggle a little bit with anxiety. Putting those individuals in an environment that is high pressure, high expectations can be very triggering, and so they may be more susceptible to developing these type of things. So. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to change the culture overnight. It's certainly something yeah. we continue to work on because we recognize this is an issue, and so we're doing what we can in very small increments. I think it's important to not be afraid to talk to somebody that you're worried about. Sometimes we do turn a blind eye and we just ignore it. So either uh, you know, talking with them personally if you know them, mm -hmm. or if you're really concerned, certainly filing a Duke REACH report. And so at least the individuals that are high risk are being seen and are being helped. As far as changing some of the culture, I think we have to move away from food talk that is not constructive. I mean, if you wanna talk about the amazing meal you made last night, that is fabulous. But if I sit down with you and you start telling me about, I shouldn't eat this and I shouldn't eat that, or do you know how many calories are in that, or right. what is my fitness pal, that's very destructive. That's very not helpful to anyone because we all have issues to some degree with food. We all have personal relationships. And so when I overhear that conversation, although I'm not a part of it, 
that's already triggering to me. And so the conversation has to change. It has to be more positive. If you're going to talk about food, then let's talk about the great meals. But it can't be about calories or fat or sugars are bad or carbs are bad. Right. And watching our language, there is no good or bad. You know, all foods can fit into what really is a healthy diet. And so I think being careful of what we're talking about around body image, if you don't like your thighs, okay, I get that. Maybe we don't love our thighs. But if I'm talking about that out loud, there's probably five other people next to me that have really poor body image, and that can be very triggering for them. And so I think we just have to be careful about the type of conversation we're having about our size, our, our body image, our calories, our food, and try to be more constructive with how we talk about that. One thing I hear a lot, and that I am definitely guilty of saying also, is if someone offers me, I don't know, cookies or cake or whatever, I'll say like, I'm trying to be good today, so I'll pass on it. And I know that's another way that we consider certain foods good and certain foods bad, even though it's all in moderation fine. Absolutely. And thank you, actually, for sharing that. That is so often what people say is, I'm trying to be better today or I'm trying to be good. How is having a piece of cake going to change whether my day is good or bad? Right. You're not going to fundamentally become evil right. through this one act of eating sugar. Right. But that goes to the deeper issues of my self-worth mm -hmm. is tied up into how well I control my eating. And if I allow myself to have something that is not part of my plan, then I'm really not controlling my eating and therefore I feel bad about myself. So it's really more fundamental in terms of self-worth. Mm -hmm. What's going on, it's not really about that piece of cake, but we yeah. just make it about the piece of cake. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So issues of control and self-worth and esteem are all mixed up in it. I have unfortunately never worked with a student that has high self-esteem and an eating disorder. Wow. So most people who struggle with disordered eating and eating disorders have underlying some underlying mental health issues that can be anywhere from extreme anxiety to depression but never unfortunately have I seen anybody that comes in feeling really confident and really good about themselves and has an eating disorder so self-worth and self-confidence is very much tied up into these issues yeah yeah that really says a lot mm -hmm. um, do you have any other general thoughts or takeaways if there is a person struggling with their body image listening to this podcast what would you want to let them know you know, as Paige said, I think, you know, it's, it's one thing to say love yourself. When you don't like yourself, you're not going to do that. It's going to be really hard. And I appreciate that she did send out that message. We would hope that everybody would love themselves. Mm -hmm. But I would say, you know, if you're in a place where you're really not feeling good about yourself in general, rest assured there are people out there that can help you process your thoughts and your feelings. And that doesn't mean anybody's going to fix you. That doesn't mean we're going to take away your eating disorder or your relationship with food. But we are happy to be here to listen to what your concerns are, what your worries are, what your fears are, uh, and see if we can't work together to maybe get you to a little bit healthier place. Awesome. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming in today. You are very welcome. As always, please share your own stories through our website, which can be found at metoomonologuesduke.org. We are on the iTunes store, and we would love it if you left us a review. Let us know what you think.